This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. There's an old definition of insanity, which is insanity is merely doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over, but expecting a different outcome. I first heard this by one of my teachers who was trying to drive home a point about the importance of paying attention to your study habits and to recognize which ones are working and which ones aren't, to not delude yourself into thinking that you're studying effectively when you're not. You know, if you keep doing poorly on the exams, but you just keep using the same study techniques over and over and over, and you keep doing poorly on the exams over and over and over, but you keep using the same study techniques, and but you're hoping that maybe next time you're going to do better than you did last. You know, this process of doing the same thing over and over and over the same way, but expecting a different result, well, that's insane. The teacher's point was clear. Wake up, do, do try something else. I mean, you may not be learning a lot by doing the same thing over and over and over while you continuously fail over and over and over. But the one thing you can learn is that that method that you've been using, it is a failed one. It produces nothing but failure. You can rule that method out. You can chuck that one. In the process of elimination, that method's been eliminated, or at least it should be, unless you're insane. And of course, we're all a little insane for all sorts of reasons. We have habits, we're lazy, we enjoy filling our time more than getting results. There's all sorts of reasons, many of which go completely unexamined and are completely unnoticed by us. Now, I like this definition of insanity. I think it's clever, I think it's funny, and I think it has its place. But I'm not sure if deep down it's really accurate. In fact, I think it covers up an even deeper problem that we have when we do things over and over and over and over. While we profess over and over and over that we're doing those things over and over and over to try to achieve some sort of result which never seems to come, I think, in fact, most of the time we're actually lying to ourselves about what we're trying to achieve. And the key here is that we're lying to ourselves. We may be lying to others as well, but we're primarily lying to ourselves about our objectives. We say we're trying to do well in school. We say we're trying to break some bad habits. We even think on one level that that's what we're really trying to achieve. We really think we're trying to lose some weight, be a better person, be nicer to our spouse. But the real insanity is not that we're doing the same things over and over and over and not achieving these things. The real insanity is that we're lying to ourselves about what we're really trying to achieve. And even more insane is the fact that we believe our own lies. Well, that's weird. But I think we all do it. And I think the facts are that in order to get down to your true objectives, your true motivations, you got to peel back the onion a little bit. You got to examine honestly what you're trying to do, how you're trying to do it, and why you're trying to do it. This goes without saying, I think, for anyone who's been alive longer than four or five years, particularly as we look at the conduct of others. But it seems so hard to be really honest with ourselves as we examine our own professed objectives and methods. Many of us don't like to do that, and so we just keep doing the same thing over and over again, and we feign frustration when it doesn't seem to achieve the objective that we've been acting like is our true objective when it really isn't. Because the sad fact is sometimes, particularly when you're insane, you got to dig a little bit deeper into yourself to see what your true objectives really are. It's only when you dig a little bit deeper into yourself that you can expose the lies that you think represent your true objectives. 
wrote a very interesting article the other day about investment managers, portfolio managers, as they're known in the trade, and how the portfolio managers will invariably pursue certain investment strategies that they know may not be appropriate for the given market conditions. Like, for example, right before crash is going to happen or right, right before the credit cycle gets overextended. They may know that their particular investing strategy is not appropriate for those type of situations, yet they will continue with the strategy up into market crashes, losing their investors' money. But why do they do this? Why don't they just get out ahead of time, particularly if they can see it coming? Because, for example, most of the portfolio managers could see the 2008-2009 financial crisis coming. Most could see it. So why didn't they get out of the market earlier? It's because deep down, if they were really honest with themselves, they're really not trying to make their investors money. They're trying to keep their jobs and get their bonuses. And that's a slightly different objective. And in the, in the case of an impending market crash, if you're too early, or heaven forbid, if you're just wrong about it, your relative returns as they compare to your peers can be significantly worse. But if you and everyone else, like lemmings, just go over the cliff together, your relative performance to your peers will hold up and you'll probably keep your job. You don't get fired for doing the same thing that everyone else is doing. And so while many managers, investment managers, portfolio managers, profess to be trying to achieve objective X, which in this case is returns for their investors, what they're really doing, what they're really doing is trying to achieve objective Z, which is keep their salary position and their bonus. And the way to achieve objective Z is a little bit different than achieving objective X. So it's not a situation where these people are insane. Just doing the same things over and over and over. Keep investing the same old way right into the crash and expect different results. Actually, they're just not being honest and upfront about what their objectives really honestly are. Because at the end of the day, no one's really that stupid. Where we just keep doing the same thing over and over. And I mean, we might be stupid for a little while. Where we do something once, twice, three, four. Okay, there's, but there's a point. And it's sooner rather than later where if we're really honestly trying to achieve something and what we're doing doesn't achieve that, where we change. And while we may never achieve the end goal, we're not insanely doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over. And what's so interesting about these deeper hidden goals, these secret goals, secret objectives, secret incentives, is that they always go unspoken. They're always unstated, not just to our peers and those around us, but to ourselves, to our own minds as we're going about our work. And sometimes digging deeply and finding out what the real objective is Peeling back the onion, if you will, creates stress and unease and embarrassment and difficulties and even chaos. But I think it's important to be honest and as straightforward and as clear about what you're really trying to achieve or do or accomplish or get away with. We all know people, and we usually find these type of people quite difficult, who are never straightforward about just what it is they're trying to achieve. We call these type of people sneaky, manipulative, opaque, disingenuous, none of which are adjectives used when we praise someone else. I mean, you rarely hear, oh, that guy, Jack, he's so manipulative and opaque. Never quite sure just what his objectives are, what he's playing at. Boy, isn't that awesome? You never hear those adjectives used in that way. The interesting thing about life, though, is that it has a way of, over time, sifting the wheat's from the tares, if you will. And in this case, the wheat represents things that you really desire, that are really good, versus the tares, 
which are things that have maybe snuck in there that are hiding as your secret objectives that you may not even be aware of, but seem to be driving your behavior. And so you're confused about that. And so you think you're insane, doing the same thing over and over and over when in fact you're quite sane. Well, you're not totally sane. You're just insane in a different way than you think you are. You're not doing the same thing over and over and over, expecting a different result this time. You're not insane that way. You're just not aware of the secret objective that you're really trying to achieve. The objective of being a victim, the objective of merely keeping your job rather than producing results, the objective of filling up time so that you can tell your parents you did your homework when really you don't want to go through the mental anguish of actually learning anything. You just want to go through the motions so you can get to the video game as fast as you can. But something happens over time to people suffering from this second kind of insanity, the hidden objective insanity that you're not even aware of, the lies that you're telling yourself about what you think you're trying to achieve, but you're not really trying to achieve that, that second kind of insanity. Life has a way over time of separating the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats. And you learn over time, I think, to slowly wake up and be honest with yourself about what you're really doing and why. And whether you're simply playing a role given to you, written in a script that someone else wrote for you, whether you're doing that or whether you're working away at some job that you think looks good on paper but in fact makes you miserable, or whether you're participating in certain organizations or certain social groups, people that you really don't like, life has a way over time of slowly revealing these things to us. Life has a way over time of revealing to us just what it is we're really motivated by and really trying to achieve. And the moment of clarity can be liberating, enlightening, or terrifying. I suppose that's why I love the story of Lehi and his family leaving Jerusalem. There's a slow realization going on over the first couple books of Nephi in which the hidden secret, unrecognized, unuttered, true objectives of certain members of the party are slowly dragged out from the shadows and then declared quite explicitly by those particular members of the party. And I think we know who I'm talking about. Sam, of course. No, not Sam, but Laman and Lemuel. They put up a never-ending stream of complaints and excuses, a litany of what appeared to be insane conduct in the sense that it's something that's done over and over and over while expecting different results. They put up a nonstop display of that type of behavior only to, in the end, reveal what their real objectives were, what their real issues were, and that was that they wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be the boss. That was the objective X for them, finally revealed after they arrived in the promised land, and they broke apart, separated into two peoples. That was the true issue all along, I think, and they were never really aware of it. Of course, they gave us a few hints that this was their secret motivation all along early in the story when they complained quite explicitly that they should be the ones in charge, not Nephi. But there's also just a lot of complaining and moaning and groaning that all the methods that Nephi was using and Lehi was using to achieve enlightenment, understanding, revelation, inspiration about the importance of the journey and leaving Jerusalem and going to the promised land. They spent a lot of time just complaining and moaning and groaning and playing the victim that all these methods, this search for enlightenment and knowledge, that didn't work for them. Somehow it wasn't really working. They were griping, complaining, 
calling Lehi and Nephi names, when all along they really weren't interested in the truth. They weren't interested in deeper spiritual understanding about this journey and this quest that the whole family seemed to be on. They just wanted to convince everyone that they should be in charge, specifically Laman, that he was the boss. He was smarter than the rest of them. They wanted the group to follow them. That's really what they were trying to achieve. Well, that's a fundamentally different objective than trying to understand the cosmic life-altering purposes of this great journey to begin with. But over time, this hidden objective boiled up to the surface and became very explicit in everybody's minds when they got to the promised land and they just separated, they being the people of Nephi and the people of Laman and Lemuel. And the great tragedy of it all is think of all the wonderful miracles as described in the story that Laman and Lemuel just missed out on. Visitations from angels, miracles in hunting, the miracle of the Liahona, things that were right in front of them that they never appreciated because they were lost, deceived by their own secret objectives, were unaware that they were lying to themselves. If you live long enough in life, you can see that pattern in others, sadly in yourself. But if you live long enough, you'll see this pattern over and over and over in all sorts of people. People who are driven by secret, in-the-shadows motivations, with secret, undeclared objectives, who've been so taken over yet are simultaneously so unaware of what those objectives are that they miss out on all the splendor of life, all the miracles of life all around them all the time. And the lesson from the story of Lehi and his family And their journey, whether you take the story literally or figuratively, it doesn't matter. The lesson's the same, and it's this. True insanity is pursuing an objective you're not even aware of. That's what true insanity is. And the scriptures are rife with stories of that type of insanity, as is literature, as is all sorts of media and artwork. The true insanity is to say you're out to achieve objective X, while all the while your mind has completely hidden its real objective. It makes you a slave to this hidden objective that you're not even aware of, aware of what you're really trying to achieve. Well, that's weird. How can that be? Can we really be that insane? And if so, why would we be that insane? Church, of course, is a great place to notice this type of behavior. We see people at church professing to be doing something for one reason when it's quite clear that they're doing it for another. For example, we all know the overly religious person, the person sick with religiosity, whose goal is not a pure life, whose goal is not a clean life, but whose ultimate hidden goal is to be recognized for being cleaner and more pure than everyone else. We know others who are always there doing everything they're supposed to be doing, whose motivation secretly is to become the whatever, Relief Society president, bishop, stake president. I'm not saying everybody's like that, but we've all known people who are like that, I think. Maybe we've been like that. We also know people who aren't like that, who are very clear in their own minds what their motivations are, what their objectives are. And you can agree with those objectives. You can agree with those motivations. You can find those people great or wonderful, depending on their objectives and their motivations. But one thing you cannot say about them is that they are insane. They're very clear and straightforward about what it is they're trying to achieve. I had a guy in my ward. It was actually kind of refreshing. He had joined the church five or six years earlier because his wife was a member. When they got married, he was not a member. He was a very hard-charging guy, successful professionally. He stated quite clearly that his objective was to be the bishop in five years because, you know, he thought 
the ward could use a little real leadership and he could provide it. So what did he need to do to qualify to be bishop? I mean, his objective to be a bishop was actually, while, while not really appealing to most of us on a personal level because, you know, you ought not seek office, on another level, it was, it was kind of refreshing because it was so not insane. It was so rational and clear and authentic. You had to kind of admire the guy in a way for being so candid about what was driving him. I'd rather talk to that guy than the guy who is secretly petitioning to be the bishop. I mean, that's we all know that guy, too. And we'd rather be with the guy who's up front about it, I think. But most of the time inside our community, those who are really clear and mindful and aware of what their own objectives are, are usually driven by love and kindness and not by the possibility of attaining a position of status. And there's a difference with those type of people in our lives, at, in our community, in our families. And I don't think those type of people are ever doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting different results because they know what they're trying to achieve. And so if what they're doing does not produce the results they're looking for, they change it. I think those of us who are doing the same thing over and over and over and over need to spend a little time thinking about what our objectives really are. And I think the reason we're not always candid about what our objectives really are is we're sort of embarrassed by them. Unlike the guy who admitted he wanted to be the bishop, most people in the church, I think, are ashamed of pursuing higher office, whatever that is. So, so they can't really quite admit that to themselves. They're embarrassed. Nonetheless, that deeper motivation will drive their actions. And in the process, they may miss out on a lot of other things that can be quite moving and meaningful. We're particularly embarrassed by some of our darker objectives and motivations, like revenge or theft or maligning the characters of others, or sloth, or any other comforts that we feel like we're indulging in without deserving it. So I think one of the reasons these unacknowledged motivations, these unacknowledged objectives remain in the shadows is because we're frankly just embarrassed by them, or ashamed of them. We don't like to face this part of us, and of course this part of us is ego-driven. It's not us, but it's hidden away from us by our egos. You know, sometimes it's just hard to face. It's hard to say, even though you were hijacked by your ego during the time, your objective was to do X or Y or Z, and those things are despicable and gross and not kind. And a lot of people can't ever do it. They can never say it. They can never admit it. And if you're dealing with someone or you have a relationship with someone or you're constantly interacting with someone who simply cannot admit, even to themselves, what their deeper hidden motivations are, the motivations of their ego, which has hijacked them, are if, they, if they're unaware of it, life can be very difficult. Interactions can be very odd. And sometimes those type of people can make you feel like you're going insane because of how clever and secretive and convoluted they are. We're familiar with terms like gaslighting and obfuscation. There's all sorts of tricks that people play. And it's okay. In fact, it's foolish not to be wary and careful around those type of people. And those type of people exist in all sorts of contexts. And they're capable in extremes of doing unimaginable things. And the reason they're capable of these unimaginable things, these extreme things, is because when you're trying to achieve an objective you're not even aware of yourself, having been completely hijacked by your own ego, you're also going to be oblivious to how extreme your ego is going to take it as if you're like a zombie 
For those familiar with Eckhart Tolle, he calls it the pain body. When the pain body rises up and takes someone over, it's like they're not even themselves. And I think that's what can happen when someone is driven by unacknowledged motivations and objectives, which are, of course, primarily driven by fear. And so while Eckhart Tolle uses the term pain body, he, he, he thinks that the pain body is like the ego in extreme when the ego is feeling intense fear of rejection or failure or whatever it is. When that pain body takes over a person, they really become insane. But however you want to describe it, we all have seen people in a situation where they're blinded to their own motivations, blinded to their own objectives. They can see that they're not achieving these unacknowledged, opaque objectives. And for some reason, they go temporarily insane and do something very extreme. This can happen to us, but we can also be a victim of someone else's insanity. I think the New Testament illustrates this insanity on a collective basis. Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath day, which should have been seen as a miracle. But to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that miracle marked the point at which they began to plot to kill Jesus, because clearly they had objectives different than the spiritual well-being of those in their community. They had objectives different than connecting with God. Their objectives were to retain their power, their authority, their position, And it was surely hard for some of them within that theocracy in which they lived to acknowledge that openly, even to themselves. And it drove them ultimately to set in motion plans to capture and execute Jesus. That's an extreme example, but it's a memorable one and illustrative and instructive to those of us living in less extreme circumstances, less dangerous, but equally vexing and confusing. Another example illustrating the extremes of unacknowledged objectives is the story of Cain and Abel. One of the most depressing, maybe even the most depressing story in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve, first two people on earth, first two sentient beings, fully complete, have children. And their oldest child kills their second child. And they're the first two parents on earth, according to the story. And when we talk about Cain's motivation, I think we get it wrong. We often talk about his motivations as trying but failing to completely understand the law of sacrifice and trying to hold back some of the best fruit for himself, because Cain was, after all, the tiller of the ground. When it came time to make sacrifices, Cain offered not really the best fruits and vegetables that he had produced that year, but just pretty good ones. And as a result, God said, you know, you're kind of missing the point of sacrifice. Why don't you go back and give it another try? Meanwhile, Abel, his younger brother, who was the shepherd, keeper of the flocks, He offered up some of the better lambs as a sacrifice, and the Lord accepted Abel's offering. And Cain, for some reason, went completely insane and went over to Abel and picked up the jawbone of an ass and beat him to death. So I think there's something a little more complicated and deep and opaque beyond a mere comparison of their relative sacrifices going on. I think if Cain were just trying to offer a better sacrifice, one that would be accepted by the Lord... He could have figured that out. So what was Cain motivated by? Clearly it was status, prominence, many of the things that I think Laman and Lemuel were motivated by, many of the things that I think the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were motivated, motivated by, which was authority, power, and position over someone else. Status, maintenance of their identity as a better than. And if that's 
the secret objectives of our ego, which has hijacked us, then in the words of Eckhart Tolle, your pain body will go insane and do all sorts of things that you never thought you were capable of. For the ables of the world, it can be confusing when all of a sudden someone is attacking you. And for what? What had Abel done? What had Christ done that was so offensive to these other people? All Abel had done was offer an honest offering. All Christ had done was heal, albeit on the Sabbath day, but heal someone miraculously. And so for Abel and for Christ, it must have been quite a shock when they were attacked by people that seemed to have no connection with their actions. Not only no connection, but certainly no reason to be angry at them for doing whatever it is they did, making the sacrifice, healing the man with the broken hand. It must have felt as if they were being blindsided by pure insanity. And of course, that's what it was, pure insanity. It's a place I think many of us have been before. And while not as extreme, we have felt attacked, I think, or our reputations besmirched or criticized or marginalized by someone that we feel as though have no connection to us or what we're doing. And it's easy at that juncture to get illogical ourselves and start to doubt our own grasp of reality, particularly if we don't understand the mechanics or the thought processes of these type of people. But the insanity of others need not be your insanity. It doesn't mean you can do anything for the insane. Often we can't, but we can at least know that the insanity of others is their insanity and we not need drink in or react to it. In fact, often the only thing you can do in certain situations, like when the proverbial canes are coming at you with a jawbone or the Pharisees and Sadducees are conspiring to try you in the Sanhedrin and ultimately execute you in metaphorical terms, of course, is to withdraw. Often that's all you can do because when someone's been hijacked by their pain body, taken over by an ego trying to achieve secret hidden objectives, trying to convince them with reasonable, rational arguments usually does nothing. The best thing to do often and sadly when the canes of our worlds are chasing us with the proverbial jawbones is to not stop to confront them, to try to convince them that they've lost their minds. And we've all had experience trying to do that. And it doesn't work. This makes sense. Lehi was told to escape Jerusalem. Joseph was told to take Mary and the young baby Jesus into Egypt. And when we ourselves go insane, the spirit which guides us usually withdraws or goes silent. Certainly our own ability to resonate with those spiritual promptings from beyond diminishes greatly because our inner being shrinks in awareness of the insanity of others and how commonplace the insanity of others is informs us of the meaning of what long-suffering means and why being patient is so critically important because there are sadly times in life when you just have to wait it out. And sometimes we have to wait for a long, long, long time. But eventually life shows all of us what our true motivations are, what our true objectives are. Life forces all of us to confront those things, whether we like it or not. And you can always tell when you're interacting with someone who's been honest with themselves about what their objectives and motivations are and what they were and are familiar with how they get hijacked. It's really wonderful to interact with someone like that because they're careful and they're patient and they're kind 
and they're long-suffering. They're also wary and vigilant and not unrealistic as they interact with others who may not be as mature. Because insanity can be contagious, particularly when a group is comprised of individuals who each have their own secret agendas. In that case, insanity is very contagious, virulent even, driving groupthink and in extremes mob rule, where one person's insanity amplifies another's. And we can see this in all sorts of contexts. We've all been to a ward where the collective vibe of the ward is, is not great. And so you would think that in a place where people are trying to be good, there wouldn't be mob rule. And I think as a general rule, there isn't. But we've all seen that it can happen anywhere, including our families, our wards. And the only way to stop the spread of insanity is to not engage in it yourself, to not spread it. That seems so obvious, so straightforward. And on one level it is, but on another it's not because it requires sometimes just to wait while you do nothing, to be patient and to not get discouraged, to not be easily provoked. It's a great thing to live in a state where you're not easily provoked. It's actually awesome. Not that I have so much experience, but I have some. And I've gotten better at it over the years. But for some reason, it's hard for us to learn to not be easily provoked by the insanity of others or the broader chaos in the world. But if you can get to the point where you're not easily provoked, then the gaslighting of others, the obfuscation of others, the virulent mob think of others, the cruelty of others, doesn't make you doubt yourself doesn't affect your mental well-being because you know it has nothing to do with you it had but everything to do with the insanity of others which is something they have to figure out in the lives that have been constructed for them and their experience we don't have a lot of imagery of our own that we can point to as representative of this sort of state the state of not being provoked the state of withdrawing the state of staying away from the virus of insanity that infects so many around us. I think some of the Eastern religions have better imagery. There's an old trope in many of the Eastern religions of the holy man up on top of the hill, set apart from the village, the wizened sage who's not in the middle of everything, but apart, above, beyond, a place where seekers have to go on their own initiative. That describes symbolically this state, I think, of being separated enough from those around us, that we won't get whipped up in their insanity. We won't be provoked. This image of the wizened old sage separated from the group also implies something about allowing what is to be, not trying to control and take over and change everything around us, even if those things going on around us are detrimental. This is a harder concept, I think, for us to fully come to terms with, to accept because ours is a proactive faith. We are the light on the hill, the salt of the earth. We're supposed to go out and care for others, save them, preach to them. But there's a certain arrogance that underlies those sort of beliefs, at least a simplistic version of those type of beliefs. Simplistic, at least in the sense that I just summarized them. And the arrogance is that we're so great. We have our stuff together so much. We know so much more than everyone else that we can insert ourselves into their insanity and through mere testifying, make everyone sane again. And I'm not saying there aren't times to step in and help others. There certainly are. 
I'm not saying there aren't times when we know more than someone else or we have some needed insight. Clearly there are, but even Jesus went up to the mount to sort himself out, to face his demons, to learn to recognize how his ego worked, to learn how he might be vulnerable. What sort of provocations work against him? You remember that scene, Christ on the mount, tempted after 40 days of fasting, with riches, with food, with power, with status. Even Christ himself had to face these temptations first and learn to deal with his own reactions to them before he dared wade into the fray of all the insanity that must have been bubbling around Jerusalem. And in the end, he ended up doing a lot more allowing and accepting of what was than he did of preaching and solving and getting wrapped up in all the insanity around him, helping where he could, accepting what he couldn't change, transcending it all in the end. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time. <laughs>